remember being a kid and somebody forgot to dismiss you, you start sweating? Uh, well, I've waited uh, a long time to hear the words um, go-kart toilet in church, so <laughs> thank you, Tim. That really ministered to all of us, I know. Well, my name is Raleigh Morris, and uh, I was born in the Promised Land, which for those of you who don't know is West Texas. <laughs> And uh, there's not a whole lot of Jewish people in West Texas, but our family is Jewish. Of course, we believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and we place our faith and trust in him. Unfortunately, not all of my family has done that, and we have, I'm sure, countless members of our family perished without knowing their Messiah. Um, but this morning, what I would like to do, as requested, uh, is to take a journey to look at Israel, past, present, and future. <clears throat> so we're going to be covering all 66 books of the Bible today. <laughs> no, of course not. We're, going to do, we're not going to do all of that. But we're going to get in a car, and we're going to start driving, and we're going to go pretty fast. And then we're going to get out and do some sightseeing along the way, okay? And we're going to stop at, I think, some very pivotal moments in is Israel's history. But the main thing that I want you to gather from this morning is to understand who you are in the kingdom and who the Jewish people are in the kingdom. The Gentiles in the kingdom of God have a very, very specific and important role, as do Jewish people in the kingdom of God. But if you get these two lines crossed, a lot of confusion can happen, and a lot of um, things that you should be doing and that God has planned for your life, I think that you'll just end up skipping over and missing altogether, okay? So... Uh, that video, I did not know that, that you guys were going to show that video of praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Um, I was literally, I'm not a very emotional person most of the time, um, but I was fighting back tears because my heart is completely and utterly broken for the Jewish people, my people. And my goal today is to make you extremely uncomfortable in where you sit in relationship to the people of Israel. I might even pop a few bubbles as gently and lovingly as I can, but I want you to see who the people of Israel are in history and how God feels about the Jewish people. Okay, so um, the, uh, the very first thing we need to do is just who in the world, who, who are we talking about when we talk about the Jewish people? You know, there was a, a poll in Israel of 185,000 Orthodox Jewish families, and there was one question, it was who, what makes one person Jewish. What makes a person Jewish? Who is a Jew? And no more than 12% agreed on a definition, which is extremely Jewish. That just makes total sense. Um, you know, we have a saying that between um, two Jews, you'll have three or four opinions, okay? So that, that poll just it makes, it makes me laugh because I think that makes total sense. But the reality is the Jewish people don't even know who they are. And I think many people throughout the world, especially in Christendom, don't know who the Jewish people are. So Let's this morning define who are the Jewish people. The Jewish people, it's very simple, because the definition we get from the Bible, and uh, that's where the Jewish people come from. God created a people, didn't he? And we're going to walk through all this. But the very, the very most basic definition of a Jewish person is someone who is a descendant of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. He had 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. One split, so it comes, sometimes it kind of looks like 13 tribes. But if you were a descendant of Jacob through your father, that's who you gained your tribal identity from, you are a member of the nation of Israel. Okay? 
Israel, believe it or not, is not an ethnicity. Now, it was created from the Hebrew people, which Abraham was one of, so you have the Hebrew people becoming the nation of Israel. But Israel as a nation is not necessarily, by definition, an ethnicity. This is why someone is not 25% Jewish or 50% Jewish or 75% Jewish, depending on the makeup of their, of their parents. If your father is Jewish, you are a member of the nation of Israel. And it's a national identity in the eyes of God. Because in the eyes of God, there are no races. Okay? There is nationalities. You have the Gentile nations and you have the Israeli nation, the nation of Israel, which we now commonly know as the Jewish people. Okay? So now that we have that defined, we can start talking about the past, the present, and the future of the nation of Israel. So in Genesis 3, we have a problem arise. And that problem is, is that man separates himself from God by going against God, by transgressing against God, by disobeying God. And so God makes a promise to somebody. He makes a promise to Satan. He makes a promise to Satan that he's going to put enmity between him, him and the woman. And that her seed, Zerah in Hebrew, will crush his head even though he bruises the seed's heel. So God makes a promise to the, to the devil that he's going to crush him. And the way he's going to crush them is through the seed of woman. Now we don't know what that seed is, but we know it's going to be a singular person. Because in the Hebrew, it's an absolute singular form of seed. So it means one seed, one individual is going to crush you. So we don't know who that's going to be, but of course man is corrupted to an, such an immense degree that God sends a flood to destroy the world. And after that flood, through Noah he has three sons, one of which is Shem, through which we follow the genealogies down in Genesis 11 and we get to Terah, the father of Abraham. And then of course uh, uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, that's his covenant name under the Mosaic Law, but he calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he says, I'm going to make you a goy gadol, which is a very funny phrase because goy in Hebrew means Gentile. But, he's, but uh, that's in the modern vernacular. But in Hebrew, it just means nation. He says, I'm going to make you a nation great or gadol big. Gadol just means bigger or great in Hebrew. So he's, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he does this in Genesis 12, and he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And that covenant is extremely important in the history of the Jewish people because that covenant is a very specific kind of covenant. It's a unilateral, unconditional covenant, which means that God makes all the promises and Abraham is asleep. So what's Abraham got to do with the covenant? Nothing. God has made all the promises to Abraham. Abraham has to do nothing. But he promises to him three things. And those three things in the covenant, Genesis 15, there's three um, partitions, if you will, to the covenant. There's the land covenant, there's the seed covenant, and there's the blessing covenant. So it's all part of the same uh, covenant, but they're promises within the covenant. So you have land, seed, and blessing. He says, I'm going to give you a land as an eternal possession. This is the land of Canaan. Okay? He says that I'm going to, through, all, through you, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the seed blessing. And then there's the general blessing, that I will make you a great nation and that you will be, uh, your descendants will be unable. If you could count the stars, you would be able to count the descendants um, that I'm going to bring forth from you. So this blessing or this promise, this covenant, 
is reiterated through Isaac, and it's reiterated through Jacob. So God, of course, changes Jacob's name to Israel, and he becomes, through his sons, the nation of Israel, as we see in Romans, according not through seed as in lineage, but through promise. So, of course, Isaac had more than one son. He had uh, Jacob and Esau. And, of course, Abraham had more than one son, didn't he? He had Ishmael, and he had Isaac. So, God, it's not through the seed of Abraham, specifically, but it's through the promise, through the person that God wanted to direct it through, which was Isaac and then Jacob. So, we have the nation of Israel. And, but we still have a problem, don't we? Because God said, in his heart throughout the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Scriptures... His heart, and this is a mystery within the Hebrew Scriptures, is to bring the Gentile world back to himself. You see, but he had to single out a nation to do this. And through this nation, he was going to bring the seed, which he promised Abraham, would bless the whole entire world. And that seed is who? Well, it's Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, we just simply see it as this figure of a Messiah. And throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we see hints that are dropped that he's going to be uh, cover all these criteria, okay? But Israel has quite the journey to go through before they get to the Messiah. Because God wanted Israel to live under a theocracy. That is, that he was directing their steps. But they had other plans for themselves. What did Israel want for themselves? A king. And who was that king? Saul. That's right. So they bring Saul in, and, and, and the Lord says, this is going to be bad news for you guys. You, don't, you really don't want to do this. But they, they're like, look, just let us, okay, let us do our own thing. Okay, so they have Saul come in. Saul does an okay job, but in the end, um, he ends up uh, summoning up the witch of Endor to tell him what's going to happen in a battle. And, uh, and Samuel comes up from the grave, and he says, why are you bothering me? And uh, Saul says, I want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. And he goes, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to die. That's what's going to happen tomorrow because you've um, gone against the word of the Lord. So the anointed one uh, who is going to be anointed king, of course, is David. And David has a very special role in the heart of God because God promises David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he's going to establish his throne, the Davidic throne, forever. In Isaiah 9, we read this. For, us unto, uh, for unto us a child is born... Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will, not, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So... As you can tell from the language, we're not talking about a simple human being. No child, no entity, no human being in the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a very unique Israelite to be born. We see in um, uh, Micah 5.2 where he's going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem Ephrata at the time that the uh, prophecy took place, there were actually two Bethlehems. So we know uh, where he was going to be born. We know he was going to be a very special kind of human being. And um, at the same time, we also know when he was going to be born. Because in Daniel 9, 
Daniel gives us, God gives us through the prophet Daniel, the exact timing of when the Messiah would be cut off. And there's a famous Jewish rabbi by the name of Rashi in the Middle Ages, in the 11th and 12th, he lived in the 11th and 12th century, who was the first person to publicly work out the math and publish it, if you will, of when the Messiah had to come. Now, this Rashi, not a, not a Christian. He was not a, a Jewish believer in Jesus, not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but he worked out the math, and this came out to approximately 27 CE, common era, or AD. Okay, so right from a Jewish mouth, we have exactly when the Messiah was supposed to come and be cut off, as we read in Isaiah 53. Rashi figured it out, yet the Messiah, uh, the Jewish people rejected that it was Jesus, that this was this person that Rashi was talking about. He, he, he suggested a few other people it may have been. So even then, the, the, the Jewish people uh, in the Middle Ages, even though they had they'd read their own Bible, still didn't, didn't figure it out. So, um, we back up a little bit into history, and the Jewish people have a lot of problems within the nation. Uh, there's there's a, a battle between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It's in, we end up uh, splitting the kingdom into um, uh, Israel, which is the northern ten tribes, and Judah, which is the southern ten tribes, the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And uh, they strayed for foreign gods. They start worshiping foreign gods. And God says, I'm going to judge you. So first, the northern kingdom is judged and is carted off in the 8th century B.C. And then we have the southern kingdom of uh, Daniel's day carted off and Jerusalem is destroyed in 586 B.C. Now there's an interesting thing that I want to stop and spend a few seconds on here. And that is that there's a myth within uh, thinking both secular and Christian that, that the Ten tribes of Israel have been lost since the, the northern kingdom was carted off. This is a myth because Assyria, who carts off the northern ten tribes, is incorporated into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar when he comes in and conquered, conquers the southern two tribes. So in the conquering of the southern two tribes, they're then united with the northern ten tribes to have all tw- twelve tribes together in exile together in Babylon. And... Uh, another uh, just uh, the general area of diaspora so that's an important point that i want to make so before this happens jeremiah is telling the people it's going to happen but in jeremiah 31 31 he makes a promise through god or god makes a promise i should say uh, to the jewish people through jeremiah that he is going to Give them a new covenant. And in that covenant, he's going to write the law upon their hearts. I'm just going to read this real quickly. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke... Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the last of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
So in, if, in order for this to happen, there has to be a, a unification of Israel because he promises it to both the northern ten tribes, that's Israel in this passage, and the southern two, Judah, which Benjamin is, is simply incorporated in. So when is this going to happen? When will this take place, and how will it take place? The reality is, is that the only way that this new covenant could happen and that God could write the law on the hearts of the Jewish people is through the Messiah, through the seed that was promised in Genesis 3. And believe it or not, this happens at a feast day called Shavuot, which means weeks. Uh, Ot is plural, Shavuot is uh, weeks, so it's plural weeks. We, you know it as Pentecost, okay? So Pentecost, which is a feast that celebrates the giving of the law, uh, we recognize this, of course, as the beginning of the church. There's an interesting thing that happens at Pentecost because we read in Acts that there were Jews from all over the diaspora there in Jerusalem. So you have Jews that were dispersed into Babylon and the surrounding region that never returned when Nehemiah returned to build the wall in the uh, 5th century B.C. So these are, uh, as you know, Jews can be a little uh, stubborn in Scripture, a little stiff-necked. They probably had businesses going that were doing well, and they didn't want to leave them to come back to Jerusalem and pick up shop, okay? Um, so there they are in the diaspora, but they have to come back for the Feast of Shavuot to Jerusalem. So here you have the uh, members of Israel from every single tribe coming back for Shavuot, Pentecost, to the temple because it's a commandment. And what does God do when that happens? Who do they hear about? They hear about this guy, this Israel, Israelite named Yeshua or Joshua. And they learn that here he was doing miracles Messianic miracles in their eyes, and that he had died, and that he had been crucified, hung on a tree, and that he had been risen from the dead, and that thousands and thousands of Jews had seen him not only be killed, but resurrected in the flesh, and they became believers in the Jewish Messiah. This is the beginning of what we know as the church. And um, I will tell you that many scholars, and within Scripture itself, we see that it wasn't just a few Jews that believed. It was tens of thousands of Jewish people, tens of thousands of Israelites who believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. Now, the Hebrew Scriptures tell us that men of rank, that is, Jews of rank, would reject him. This is the leadership. And, of course, we see, of course, that in the New Testament writings that the leadership of the Jewish people did, in fact, reject um, Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. But for the greater population, you cannot have a massive movement that affects the entire globe with a few misly little Hebrew boys believing in Yeshua. No. This was a belief system that happened on a grand scale and that affected so much that... Uh, within a hundred years, the Gentile population had dwarfed the Jewish population within the church. And we see something um, <clears throat> come to fulfillment in Second Peter, the first chapter, that was promised to them in Exodus that would happen to the Jewish people. 
And that is that God promised them that they would be a holy uh, priesthood to all nations. And just to, for a little bit of context, we're going to start reading in First Peter, the first verse. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, with his blood. The, Peter is writing this letter to Jewish people who are believers in Jesus throughout the dispersion of the Roman Empire. So that's the context of who he is writing to. And then it's the second chapter, verse 9, we read this. But you, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Israel. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So these are the Jews. Of course, ultimately, the Jewish leadership rejected the Messiah. They rejected his offer, legitimate offer of the Messianic kingdom. But a large portion of Jews believed, just as Jews had always believed in the word and work of Yahweh. Um, Remember, it was a small portion of Israelites who kept us from going into, I'm sorry, a large portion of Israelites that kept us from going into Canaan. But there's always been a small portion of Jewish people who have believed God, and it has been accounted to them as righteousness. So there seems to be a, well, there doesn't seem to be, there is a debate within Christendom, and there has been, it has been going on since approximately 125 BC when Justin Martyr proposed the idea that the, God was jo- done with the Jewish people, that Israel no longer existed that the Gentile church had replaced Israel in form and in function. But Peter seems to disagree here. Peter seems to say that there are Jews who believe in their goal, and nay, their job, he argues, is to bring the gospel to the rest of the world. And we see this most explicitly with the work and ministry of Paul in the New Testament. So before we move on to Israel present, I want to cover um, this last thing in uh, the New Testament when we look at the book of Romans. Now you have to imagine, you have Paul, and who was he a missionary to? He was an apostle to the Gentile world, wasn't he? So it's interesting how he starts out his epistle to the Romans. Um, And I think there's actually no better person for God to have chosen than Paul to take the truth of God to the Gentile world because he is a Jew of Jews. This is a, uh, in in today's orthodoxy, he would be a Hasidic Jew, the most orthodox of Jews. He studied under Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee. He himself was a Pharisee. So he knew the ins and outs of not only the Hebrew Bible, but Jewish tradition and messianic uh, expectations, if you will. And so here you have the professor of professors, and by the way, Paul was a fantastic philosopher. He didn't just read the, the Torah. He wrote um, uh, works of uh, other philosophers of his day. So he, this is the man that God chose to bring the truth to the Gentile world, to, for them to understand what their role was in the kingdom of God. And so in uh, the first chapter in verse 16, we read this. And many times people only read the first half of the verse. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, 
and also to the Greek. For it is in the righteousness of God, for, the, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a very interesting phrase because um, the first part of the verse and the, last, the second part of the verse are, are, are linked in tense. So they're in a prophetic perfect tense in the Greek, which means this. If the power of God is still in the gospel for salvation, then the gospel is still to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. Why? Because in, in Galatians, Paul says there is no difference in Jew and Greek when it comes to what? Salvation. When it comes to the foot of the cross, there is no difference. God does not show uh, preferential treatment when it comes to salvation between the Jewish people and the Gentile world. That does not happen. But what does happen is an order of operation. And this is because God had promised the Messiah to the Jewish people through the New Covenant and Isaiah 53 and all these other passages that we read about the Messiah, Zechariah 12, that he would bring the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people. And if he did not keep that promise, if he did not keep that promise, why should we expect him to keep a promise to us in any other regards? If he did not keep his promise to the Jewish people through Abraham and through Isaac and through Jacob and the Davidic line of a Messiah that would come, and then when it came to that Messiah, not bring that Messiah to them, God turns out to be a liar. So then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul starts, he, he takes these three chapters to deal with the Gentile world to help explain to them what their role is in regards to Israel. And in Romans 11, he knows that there's this question arising within the Gentile population in the church. And he says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Speaking of Israel, he says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Verse 11, chapter 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, their trespasses, salvation, rather, by their trespass, salvation has come to who? The Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. And then we're going to read 11, chapter 11, 17 through 21. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither, neither will he spare you. That's a very sobering statement that Paul uses. Finally, in verse 1125, lest you be wise in your own sight... I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, my brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. <clears throat> when we look at this passage about why Israel was initially broken off. And it's so that the gospel, 
the truth of the Messiah and Savior of the world would come to the Gentile people, the nations. I think this is probably, for me, this would be one of the most sobering texts in all of Scripture. People were denied the kingdom of God so that you would receive the gospel. And what is your role now that you've received the gospel? To make Jewish people jealous of that gospel. That's your role. The role of the Gentile world within the church is to make Jewish people jealous of the gospel. How are you going to be make someone jealous of the gospel if they never hear about it? I know more Jewish people in my life and that I've met uh, in acquaintances, my own father, uh, other members of my family that have come to believe in Yeshua, not from another Jewish person, but from the Gentile world. Someone that they met at work, who was a Christian, who went to church, invited them to a Passover Seder, or, Seder, or shared the gospel with them, or shared the Jewishness of the Messiah, or just simply asked questions uh, about passages in the Bible that they didn't understand. But through that conversation, the Jewish person realized that this Gentile knew way more about the Bible than they did, their own Bible. And they got jealous, started studying, and came to faith. This is a common thread that happens over and over and over again. So when we look at the Bible... And we read these words from Paul that God is, uh, has not rejected his people, that the gifts and calling of God upon the Israel are irrevocable. He cannot take them back. His promises will uh, be seen through. And <clears throat> we read finally in verse 24, chapter 11, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is where Israel sits today as a nation dispersed throughout the world and in their own, within their own country. <clears throat> many, many, many are coming to faith. And this is something that we have not seen as a church since the beginning of the church at Shavuot, at Pentecost. And the initial beginnings of the church. And the only way to describe it is miraculous. Because if God says himself that he has placed a partial hardening on the nation of Israel until all the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We also read in Ezekiel 36 and 37, which I believe, which is known as the dry bones prophecy. And we don't have time to read, read it in full. Uh, we're just going to mention it and talk about it. But God promises um, through Ezekiel, the nation of Israel... That he's going to bring them back into the land. That he's going to make them a people again. That he's going to, they're, they're going to rebuild uh, the, the, uh, their cities. They're going to farm the land again. And the last thing that he does in the passage is he breathes his spirit back upon the nation of Israel. And God's spirit in this manner, in the Hebrew scriptures, is always a spirit of recognition and belief in Yahweh. So it's not that they're just going to be a vibrant nation and invent really neat things for the rest of the world to enjoy, like the iPhone, okay? Which, by the way, all that technology in your phone was invented in Israel. Um, no, the point of breathing his spirit back upon the land is belief. It's so that the nation of Israel would turn to their Jewish Messiah and believe. And so I believe that the nation of Israel, which began returning to the land back in the middle 1850s, through to today... In all of the wars that they've gone through, war after war after war after war, has all been the providence and the sovereign hand of God bringing them back into 
land of Canaan, who they were, that, w- that, that God promised would be an internal possession for them. And so um, this morning, what I'm not going to do is talk too much about Israel's future, because I think that oftentimes we get too caught up in Israel's future. Um, and I'm going to cover uh, what I think we should think about that in a second, but I'm, before I do, I'm going to cover one question, and that is, I get asked the most, and that is, why don't Jewish people believe? What is the thing that's holding them back? It seems so clear to us. We read the Bible. The Messiah is everywhere. It's so clear that it's Jesus. I hear this time and time again. And I'm going to read for you two quotes. And I'm going to let you guess. I'm going to tell you who they are after. But I'm going to let you guess who said them. Okay? This first one's a little long, but bear with me. I think it's extremely important. This is a person writing on what to do about the Jewish people. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover the dirt with whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever see a stone or a cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses be razed and destroyed, for they pursue in them the same aims as in their synagogues. Third, I advise that their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be, be, be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise the safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. Sixth, I advise that usury be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. My essay, I hope, will furnish a Christian, who in any case has no desire to become a Jew, with enough material not only to defend himself against the blind, venomous Jews, but also to become the foe, to become the foe of the Jews' malice, lying, and cursing, and to understand not only that their belief is false, but that they are surely possessed by all devils. This is a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Next quote, I have such, I've had much conversation with many Jews. I have never seen either a drop of piety or grain of truth, ingenuousness. Nay, I have never found common sense in any Jew. <clears throat> this person called Jews as for, uh, profane dogs who under pretext of prophecy stupidly devour all riches of the earth with their unrestrained cupidity. He also said that their rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, that they die in their misery without pity of anyone. That was John Calvin. The reality is that the Jewish people do not see their Hebrew scriptures and think of Christianity. They see Christianity and think of Hitler, the pogroms, the Inquisition, and the death of many, many Jews um, under the Crusades, which was supposed to bring the Holy Land back to control under the church. You see, if I tie a dog up against a fence, and I'm wearing red shirt and khakis, and I go and I beat the tar out of that dog every day for a month, and then one of you come along, and you've seen that this dog has been abused, but you just so happen to be wearing khakis and a red shirt, that dog is all, the only thing that dog is going to see is khakis and a red shirt. He does not care that you are are even even open to the idea that you're going to let him off the chain, that you're going to save him. So I think the history of the church, now, of course, were these people believers? Come to lunch, we can argue that, okay? The reality is 
Jewish people don't care if these people claim to be believers or not. They only see that the acts that were perpetrated against the Jewish people were perpetrated by the church. So when they view the Holocaust, they don't see that it was Hitler under a Nazi regime. They see that Hitler claimed to be a Lutheran. They see that Germany was the most Christianized nation, in fact, on the face of the planet at the time of the, of the Holocaust. They see that as they were marched from their homes to death trains, they passed ten churches on the way. This is what the Jewish people see of the Christian faith. So they never even examined the tenets and the claims of the Jewish Messiah. As expressed in, I would argue, the most Jewish book in history, the New Testament. It is the most Jewish book in history. Even more so than the Hebrew Scriptures because it proclaims the coming of the Jewish Messiah. So in order to minister, in order to reach Israel today... I believe we really need to feel the weight and the wariness of the history of the church and the Jewish people. Regardless that those people who killed the Jews were not Christians. It doesn't matter. Unless you understand the weight of someone's heartache, I don't believe that you can actually effectively minister or share the truth with any individual. Regardless of background, regardless of beliefs. And so when we talk about Israel of the future... I want to describe Israel today and Israel of the future not in eschatological or in time terms, okay? If y'all come to lunch with us, that would be great. We can talk about that, okay? But I stop short because Israel and the Jewish people have become a convenient storyline and a convenient puzzle piece in many people's end times prophecy and they have neglected to see them as a flesh and blood people who exist on this planet who need the Jewish Messiah and who Paul mandated it be taken to them first. So I think uh, something that I've heard and I think we've all heard time and time again is if you want to know where man's heart lies, follow his pocketbook. Okay. So if we look at missions in general, which I, I think this is amazing that you guys are having a whole month on missions. By the way, very rare within the church today, which is sad, but I'm extremely ecstatic and I'm, I'm blessed to even think that you're spending a whole month on this. <clears throat> there's, there's many polls, and I'd be, I'd be glad you to, to direct you to the websites where um, these polls have been, uh, been taken and uh, statistics taken down. But of all missions money going into the world today, less than 1% goes to unreached people groups. Okay? One per, less than 1% goes to unreached people groups. The Jewish people are such a small minority in the unreached people group's percentage that they don't even come up in most statistics. But the few that they do, the math has been done, and of all the money going to missions, which is how missionaries are supported and, and things get done in the world beyond um, your local congregation, less than two and a half thousandths of one percent go to Jewish missions. Two and a half, that's point zero zero. Two and a half thousandths of one percent. So if we want to follow the money, is the nation of Israel and the Jewish people a priority in the minds of Christendom today? I think we have to say no. I think we have to say no. But the amazing thing is that the hand of God works with or without you. And within Israel today, and Israelis around the world, and Jewish people, but specifically with Israelis, 
We have seen more Israelis come to faith in Yeshua as their Messiah in the past two years than in the past ten combined. So this is something where 10, 15 years ago, if you lived in Israel, um, you pretty much knew every believer. Uh, it was such a small population. If you didn't know every believer, you knew that this guy knew that guy. Yeah, I've heard of that guy, Shmuley, who believes in Jesus just like me. That's, that's fantastic. But today, there are so many believers um, that you don't know them all. So we've gone from a population of about 10,000 to approximately 20,000 um, in 10 years, most of which happening in the past two to three. If you read scripture, you'll see that this can only be the hand of God. Of course, all salvation is from, is, is from God, of course. But because God has placed a partial hardening on Israel, we don't expect to see Israel come to faith, except if God is specifically moving within the nation. And that is what we're seeing. This past September, I spent three weeks in Israel with my family. Um, and, and we're hoping, we're, we're missionaries of chosen people to move there and live there full-time, evangelize full-time. Um, as missionaries within Israel. But I sat down with one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. His name is Chaim. He's 70 years old. He's a Holocaust survivor. He was a twin who was experimented on in the Holocaust with his twin sister. His twin sister was murdered in the Holocaust. He became a Nazi hunter after the Holocaust in South America. And when I asked him about that, he said, I, I asked, well, did you, did you catch any Nazis? And he said, I don't like to talk about that. He said, um, since I've become a believer, which he had, amen, praise the Lord, he had realized that vengeance is of God's. And all the things that happened to him when he was a child and all his family was murdered in the Holocaust, he is ashamed of what he did to the Nazis as he tracked them down because now he realizes, above all things, that forgiveness, forgiveness is what sets a person free. Such an amazing conversation, but Haim's story is not unique. Other Holocaust survivors are coming to faith. We have mission outreaches to Holocaust survivors. We spend a lot of time with Holocaust survivors. Uh, really, the most amazing people to be around. Um, but this is not unique. This is happening all over Israel. Jews coming to faith in Messiah, both in the Orthodox community and in secular society. So uh, I praise God for that, and uh, I pray that... This would be, uh, as, as we, we start uh, winding down here, uh, you know, that video just so ministered to me because praying for the peace of Jerusalem is so very important. But I think that's third on the list because I think we're commanded to do more than just pray for Jewish people. I have many people that come up and say, I pray for the Jewish people. I thank you that you pray for the Jewish people. But what we should be doing as commanded is sharing the gospel with the Jewish people. The most Jewish thing a person can do is share the Jewish Messiah with a Jewish person. Jews are not saved just because they're Jewish. No. Millions of Jews have perished not knowing the Messiah. Just as billions of Gentiles have perished without knowing their Messiah. Okay? So we must share the Jew Jewish Messiah with the Jewish people regardless of how it may be offensive. The truth sometimes is offensive. Um, <clears throat> The second thing we can do is, if you don't know a whole lot of Jewish people, one, you should be prepared to share no matter what. Even if you, you're, my dentist is Jewish, okay? Uh, some of your dentists might be Jewish. It's a popular trade within Jewish community. Uh, doctors, you know, lawyers, all those kinds of things. We all know Jewish people in our life, even though we're, they're not a huge population. Number two, give to Jewish evangelism. 
It's badly, badly needed. Support missionaries. Do not support organizations that simply support Israel politically. I support Israel politically, but there are many things that Israel does that I don't agree with. Believe me, it's a very secular, socialist nation that in many ways far out uh, um, does uh, America in their immorality. So they're not a perfect people. You know, we say it's a, the, it's the holy people, but not everybody's holy. Okay, the holy, the holy land, not everybody's holy. But give to Jewish evangelism, not just support of Israel. Okay, that's a very clear distinction. And finally, yes, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because by praying for the peace of Jerusalem, you're actually praying for the return of our Messiah. And the salvation of the Jewish people will be at hand. I hope that these things that we've talked about today, Israel past, present, and a little bit of future, um, have made you think about your role in the kingdom of God in relationship to the Jewish people. And I really hope that you're spurred to do whatever you can in the bringing of the gospel to the salvation uh, and, and regeneration of the Jewish people. Um, if you got one of these, uh, if we could all, if, you, if you'd like to participate in a Jewish tradition, would you like to do that? Okay. It's called the ritual of the rip. So there's a little thing that you can fold on here. And some of you, while you were bored uh, this morning, you probably already filled it out. That's great. Um, but if you could just fill it out, turn it back in. If you put your email on there, we will, in your address, we'll send you our prayer letter. And I will email you all the references and notes that I had this morning so that you can go back through and track with where I got all the information and all the passages that I was referring to this morning, which I just briefly glanced over. So please fill that out. Don't leave it in your seat. Please give it back to me. Uh, thank you so much for having me. God bless you, and God bless your um, future in missions and hopefully Jewish ministry.